podcast. My name is Jeff Sparrow. Today I'm going to be talking with the novelist Chris Wormsley. Chris is the author of a number of previous books, including The Low Road, Bereft and Cairo. Today we're going to be talking in particular about his latest novel, City of Crows. And a warning, this conversation will probably contain some spoilers. But welcome to Hullabaloo, Chris. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Now, I was doing some research before this interview. Well, by research, I mean using Google, and I, I discovered that your first book, The Low Road, a novel which is a great favourite of mine, actually won the Vic Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript by an emerging Victorian writer, which I didn't know. So maybe we can start there. What was your process to initial publication? I mean, had you shopped that around before that prize, or did you just send it straight off to that? I had, I let me sort of see if I can get back to the genesis of that because that's a long time ago. I actually sort of realised when I was about 34 years old and two months that I had about 10 months in order to try and win the Vogel Award, which oh, yeah. is for writers under the age of 35. So this was in 2002 and I, or 2001, two, and I... Sh- Worked very hard. I was working full time at that stage um, in a sort of office job, and I wrote a really quick draft of what became the Low Road. In those days, it was called Among the Dead, <laughs> a very cheery <laughs> title. Uh, and I, you know, I sort of slaved away and worked on this um, pretty crappy version of what became the Low Road, and submitted it for the Vogel Award. And and nothing sort of came of it, but I um, nothing came of it in terms of the Vogel Award. But I sort of I realised I could kind of write a novel. You know, I could put sort of 75,000 words together and after that so um, I attended like many other people before me RMIT's creative writing and editing course Um, and I did then shop the book around to various publishers 
uh, and was knocked back everywhere. And then, yeah, the Vic- Vic- won the Vic Premier's... Oh, sorry, it was shortlisted Victorian Premier's Award for an unpublished manuscript in 2006, I suppose. And at the same time, uh, it had been... Um, I'd sent it off to Scribe and sort of they, they kind of accepted it for publication. I wanted to touch on that because many readers have described City of Crows as a stylistic departure mm. for you i mean i remember when the low road came out you were often described as a crime writer and your previous books have in various ways yeah. have elements oh totally of that did you did you feel that this book was going to be a stylistic departure uh not really like to me it all feels they all feel kind of of a piece to an extent like you know bereft is you know often described as this sort of gothic novel but i i you know, towards the low road kind of devolves or evolves, if you like, into a sort of a gothic kind of um, um, scenario, I guess, with Lee and this horse and this kind of gruesome scene that kind of put a lot of people off. <laughs> so it's sort of, yeah, so there's a sort of there's certain gothic elements into it that then kind of bled, if you like, into into um, bereft. Cairo's probably in some ways more of the outlier in terms of my... Almost more of a caper novel in a way. Yeah, and a sort of coming, you know, sort of a bit more kind of realist novel uh, to an extent. So um, so City of Crows always feels to me like a kind of uh, organic kind of evolution of my style, you know, of my style as much as anything else. Uh, the, the, the thing that jumped out at me as an obvious continuity is your books are very intricately plotted. Is that something that you work on before the writing? I mean, do you have it all structured out before you begin? I wish, because right. it would save me a lot of grief, I think. And I actually find plotting incredibly difficult. Like, um, I think like a lot of writers and perhaps artists in general, you know, in the sense that what comes easily to you can become your flaw in, in the yeah. sense that, you know, for me, atmosphere is really kind of second nature like I can write kind of oodles of atmosphere but obviously that doesn't move the action along so I sort of have to and so in terms of plotting and stuff I tend to start with a basic scenario I start with a um a place like I find it really hard to write unless I can sort of see the place or imagine the place which is not to say it needs to be real but um so I kind of need to see the place and it's only kind of a third of the, you know, I always find that middle third really difficult because I've got all my characters in place. I've got a sort of a setup, but then I have no fucking idea of what happens next. So I have to kind of, so it, yeah, I've tried in the part with Cairo, I tried to plot it out in advance because I thought it would take, save me a lot of grief, but I just can't kind of do it. And um, I do feel like there's, if I can give myself an element of surprise as the novelist who ostensibly knows what's going on, then that surprise can be communicated to the reader kind of more effectively. Um, so I feel like it's not a very efficient way to work because it does involve a bit of um, retrofitting yeah. of plot, of you know, of going back and suddenly realising that I need to see something in Chapter 2 that comes to fruition in Chapter 10, for example. So it's, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, that kind of stuff actually takes me a lot of time. It's interesting that you should talk so strongly about place and about atmosphere because, I mean, they are the elements that jump out of Cairo in particular. Um, And I think many listeners will probably, if if they're a bit older, will probably, if they knew that time and that place, will see the familiar elements. And it felt like that was a setting that you'd personally... Yes. Experience. Oh, yeah, it was. City of Crows is set in France in 1673. It's a very different setting, and it's obviously not one that you personally experienced. So, what does that do to your 
process? I mean, I know you did travel to Paris for the writing of this book. Did you have to do that before you could begin writing it? Uh, look, a little bit. Like, I actually started writing it properly. Like, I sort of had ideas for it, and I had idea for the character of Charlotte Picot, for example. And I, I'd been traveling back and forth from France most years because I had books come out in translation and stuff. So I was going over there for festivals and so on. And I actually... I sort of organized this little one-week writing retreat for myself on the back of a, a kind of a festival appearance. Um, so I went by myself without my family. I just had this sort of week and I just found it on the internet. It could have I could have ended up the victim of a serial killer, I suppose. But it's um, all good material. This yeah, this this, uh, this Dutch couple organised have a kind of a writer's residency in the south of France, and I just sort of organised a week to go down there by myself, and it's sort of in a very small village, and I was able to just sort of walk in the forest and kind of daydream and stuff, and it was there that I really started writing the book because I could suddenly see the kind of landscape in which I was kind of writing about, although the village of Saint-Gilles, which Charlotte um, comes from in City of Crows, is um, a fictional village. Uh, you know, I could kind of see the landscape and the type of trees and imagine the creatures and all this kind of stuff. So it sort of, um, it did sort of begin, I began actually writing it there in a real sense. Because I wondered about that. A lot, a lot of writers talk about the need to experience place and to you know, yeah. walk the landscape. And so on. I always wondered whether that was a, there was a certain amount of bogusness. Oh, you think they're lying? <laughs> about, about that. So I'm mean, interested, do you say, do you think it actually does make a difference yeah, to have gone it, to Paris well, to write it, about it, Paris? Yeah, it, it did to me. And I think also, you know, obviously going to Paris in 2015 is not the same as being there in the 17th century. Although, you know, the street I was staying in when that sort of six weeks I was in Paris had two buildings in it that are two sort of houses that are date back to, I think, the 15th century. In the street, so you know clearly it's a very different city, but at the same time you can kind of catch glimpses of it a little bit, yeah. um, you know. And, and obviously, a lot of those European cities have you know just dozens of these ancient buildings in it that are still standing and stuff. I mean, the, one of the um, the big museums in 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 Paris, the Musée Carnavalet, which I, which is a free museum and it's a story of the history of Paris, is housed in the old house of Madame de Sévigné, who was a great kind of letter writer of the 17th century. So you can kind of get a sense of what people were kind of doing and you look at paintings and stuff like that and it gives you a sense of what people were kind of wearing and stuff. So it was it certainly did enable me to um, imagine the city in greater depth than I think I otherwise would have been able to. So certain characters in this book are based on historical figures, mm. and it's a it, it's a meticulously researched novel. But the main character, Charlotte Picot, uh, is a woman, a peasant woman, who loses three of her children and her husband to plague. And the novel is mostly about her determination to protect her remaining son, Nicholas. She's not a real person, is she? No, no, she's totally a fictional person, and obviously. Um you know, there's not a lot written about peasant yeah. women of the 17th century just because they don't sort of figure in historical accounts. You know, it's all, you know, history's all sort of, you know, royal people and rich people essentially and military kind of victories and so forth. So, and it was pretty hard actually to find stuff about people like her. There's a really good, um, actually someone, it was kind of passing reference. I met somebody you know, who I sort of told was writing this book and, and he said, oh, you should... You should read this book called Montaigu, which is like this very detailed um, 
non-fiction account of a French village life in, I think, the 14th century because the Inquisition went there. It was a Cathar village who were a heretical sect and the Inquisition went through there and made very detailed kind of accounts of all the people in there and someone sort of turned this into a non-fiction book. And, you know, clearly it's a different village and it's a different... It's set kind of 200 years earlier than when I was working... It was set in City of Crows, but it was still kind of able to get a kind of a flavour of what people were concerned with and stuff like that and the kind of jobs they might have had and the kind of daily sort of daily life they might have had as well so your accounts of the plague is that close to his the historical accounts of the plague this sort of devastating well force that just seems to be wiping out everyone all yeah yes the and no there wasn't you know the year in which the kind of novel is set there wasn't actually a massive plague outbreak um there had been one um a couple of years earlier in marseille there was a really big massive plague outbreak um but so yeah it's kind of based as closely as i could imagine something like that being and, and although there were there were kind of mass outbreaks of plague they're also kind of smaller um outbreaks of kind of other fevers like scarlet fever and things like that obviously that and typhoid and things like that which would have kind of rampaged uh, through places in which you know what we take for granted as being sort of hygienic conditions were kind of pretty much unknown basically uh, the other historical um uh, facet that really jumped out at me, or one of them that jumped out at me anyway, was that the main, the other main character, Lesage, begins the novel as a galley slave. I yeah. had no idea that early modern France had galley slaves. Yeah, this was something that kind of surprised me as well. And I sort of, in some ways, I thought the galley, the idea of the galley slave was almost a myth. You know what I mean? Yeah, like totally. maybe the Romans <laughs> had them and stuff like that. Asterix but, comics. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So, um, but Louis the Fourteenth, who was the king at the time, was very keen to build up his. Uh, his kind of galley fleet, which were used on the Mediterranean in summer only. They weren't kind of designed for winter um, conditions because they were very sort of low to the water and stuff like that. So a lot of crimes which had previously you would just be sent to prison or perhaps executed, you would be sent to the galleys. And um, so, yeah, Lesage was a galley slave for about five years. For um, He was sentenced for impieties in Paris. And there is actually just on the research thing, there is actually an account of a galley slave, um, which is just called uh, My Life as a Galley Slave or something by a guy called Jean Maté, who was a Protestant who was sent to the galleys because Protestantism was kind of illegal almost. Um, and he survived for 10 or 12 years as a galley slave and was finally sort of released. But his accounts are just horrifying. Like you basically live on deck, uh, chained to your oar or to, chained to your bench. Um, there's all sorts of kind of horrendous corporal punishments um, dished out. And then and, and often for the French galley slaves, because the boats were only designed for the Mediterranean in summer, you would spend the winter in um, the port prison. So you'd sort of be chained up inside the port prison. Some people were allowed to go out, were rented out as... Um, workers for later yeah, right. uh, for builders and 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 sailors and stuff in the port um others volunteered to collect the bodies of plague victims um in marseille for example because it was sort of at least you got a day out <laughs> um so yeah it was a really i mean to survive 
you know, a month in the gallery. You know, like most people, you know, even if you were given like a three-year sentence, for example, clearly there's no, there's not very accurate record keeping done. So you would, it's kind of a death sentence almost. I mean, these descriptions give listeners a sense of the research that goes, that went into this novel. What kind of responsibility did you mm. feel when writing a historical novel? I mean, obviously you're not a historian, you're a, a, a novelist, but is it, is it more than having a desire not to jar the reader out of, out of the novel by an obvious, yeah. you know, it's, incongruity? Look, do you have a responsibility to the character to the characters to get the history? Yeah, I right? do feel like I do uh, in a sense. Like you know, clearly, I mean, there is this sort of on slight ongoing debate between historians and historical novelists as to who's kind of telling the truth. Um, and but I'm always kind of aware that history is not a science anyway. Like it's not a. It's, in some, you know, there are things that are verifiable, but we're still kind of imposing a narrative on events that happened many years later in order to kind of make sense the way we do with our daily lives to an extent, you know. Um, but I do, you know, for example, the the character of um, Madame de Montespan, who doesn't really appear in the book, but she's kind of mentioned, like there's a lot of suggestion that she was involved in black masses and child sacrifices and things like that in order to win and maintain Louis XIV's affections. Um, she was his, his official mistress. And I kind of... So one version of the novel had her as being very much involved in that kind of stuff. And I felt that because she'd never been formally charged or anything, that it was sort of... I felt it was unfair on her to right. kind of portray... You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, It was yeah. sort of like... Well, you know, this is all supposition and people who were on trial kind of mentioned these things, but it didn't feel feel kind of fair to kind of convict her um, in, in even in a sort of a fictional sense. So I do feel, I did feel kind of um, a responsibility to, I don't know, just sort of to give people a chance. You know what I mean, I guess? Yeah. I, I've always thought that the most important aspect of a historical novel probably for a novel as well but certainly for a historical novel is getting the voice mm, yeah correct and particularly when you're writing about a different historical period and a different culture that seems a very difficult task yeah how did you go about tackling that yeah it was no and you're right because i think i do think voice in any novels kind of almost crucial as a kind of charisma to a good voice that carries you through but it, like clearly it's sort of one of my um, problems in starting to write City of Crows was that I thought, well, not only are these people... I'm writing in English, obviously, and these people are ostensibly speaking and thinking in not only French, but in a sort of early modern, like a Shakespearean French, if you like, or whatever kind of version of that that is. Um, so it took me ages just to start because I just thought, I just, you know, this feels kind of false somehow. But I think, you know, any novel is... A kind of a confidence trick like you just yeah, you right. just do it you just got to start it and if it feels right then it feels right and you you know I think part of the thing of being a bit more experienced now having written a few novels and stuff is that your internal kind of bullshit detector is a little more finely refined and you know when you're not on track um, yeah like for one for example one of the things I decided early on in City of Crows was that people would never think of time in terms of minutes or hours especially someone like Charlotte, who's a peasant woman. It's not that watches didn't exist, because in fact they did, you know, mechanical devices existed. But um, I just thought, well, people would think of time in terms of seasons, in terms of saints' days, in terms of, um, 
the various prayer sessions for the day, for example, the bells would toll several times a day, um, and you know, and the time of day and stuff. So very early on, I decided that yeah, I would ha- I would never have even in someone's internal monologue, which is essentially them talking to themselves. I guess I would never have a phrase like you know. 20 minutes later, Lesage returned with news about Nicholas. So, you know, things like that like, are kind of like little mental tricks. Um, quite late in the writing of the book, I realised I'd been using the word news a bit. Yes, right. And I thought, well, and one night I was like, news is, well, for a start, it's from an English word. And so that kind of felt slightly false. And also the, the concept of news felt... Feels too modern, yeah, yeah, to me. So I had to sort of, and of course, inevitably, when you find something like that, you do a control F on your manuscript and you find you've used it like 50 times and you've got to go back and find 50 new ways to say it. So, you know, intelligence or reports or whatever it was. So, sort of work around those kind of things. Um, But it does seem to sort of highlight a, a strange, almost paradox of a historical novel again maybe of a novel in general but certainly it jumps out of a historical novel on one hand you're trying to to make people from the past significant familiar enough that that modern people can understand them at the same time you need it sufficiently strange so as to make clear their pastness. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. I mean, again, it is. I think with any novel, like, it, or, but yeah, perhaps you run the greater risk. It's a bit of a more of a high wire act with a historical novel, especially one set so so distant back. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's always worth kind of keeping in mind, or I keep in mind that the book is not the thing. The book is not life. Like, yeah. like it's the same with dialogue in it. Like. You don't probably want to read a book that has completely authentic dialogue because people talk around in circles. They don't listen to each other. You know, not that you can't make use of that when you're writing a work of fiction, but it's always an approximation. Or, I mean, my sort of thing is always stretching the bounds of plausibility. Like it just, you need to go right to the edge of that. What is what you, the reader might find plausible, and that varies with different readers as well. Like some people just don't go with you that far. Um, so you're always kind of – it's about create, – even if it is a contemporary set novel, you're always creating its own world. You know what I mean? Like you're always creating a kind of a fictional world So and you sort of decide on what the boundaries for that world are and the way that people might speak and the way they, you know, dress and behave and stuff. Um, I mean, I think – yeah, with historical novels, there's certain like I, you know, I sort of read the occasional historical novel where there's just a word used that I feel like wouldn't have been in use, yeah. and it jars you out, and it's just suddenly like ah, it reminds you you're reading a novel, and I don't, you know, for my my kind of reading experience and also the writing experience I like to give my readers is one of real immersiveness. It's like you go into the book and you're kind of in there for the duration of, you know, however many hours it takes you to read it. Like I don't want people to be reminded they're reading a book Mm. Uh, this is a book that features a book within it um, a Mm. grimoire a medieval book of magic now i know that you did research into grimoires research that included actually handling yeah tell us about that yeah so one of the yeah big things in paris i did was go to the bibliothèque nationale which is the sort of national library of france or of paris and they have they have a whole bunch of these grimoires or magic books or black books they were kind of known mostly as um and grimoires were very popular in the sort of 15th 16th century uh right up until the 18th century even and they were books of um 
spells, loosely speaking, but also would have contained, you know, herbal knowledge of, you know, various legitimacy, uh, I guess, but then sort of over time uh, uh, acquired a kind of satanic kind of import, like during the years of the, the hundreds of years of the Inquisition. Um, you know, to be caught in possession of a black book or a grimoire could result in you being kind of burnt at the stake. Um, and the other sort of interesting thing about grimoires is, is that clearly they were often owned by people who couldn't read, but because they were books of knowledge, they had a kind of a power that went beyond people's ability to read them. They kind of had a power just by virtue, like a talismanic kind of power, I guess, um, which I found kind of interesting, like clearly being a writer, I'm a big reader, and I sort of have a slightly, not superstitious, but I kind of believe books to have a kind of a power beyond their physical object, I guess, in some kind of weird mystical way, although that sounds kind of foolish when I say <laughs> it out loud. But you know what I mean? Like yes. I kind of respect them, I guess, as objects. Um, and and so, did you get a sense of that when you opened the pages? Of- not really, but I did get a sense of, um, like they have weird drawings of like devils and pigs and animals and nuns on broomsticks and, you know, like all this kind of stuff that is almost sort of cliched about witchcraft is, is you know, and you're able to take photos of them and many of them in very good condition. I mean, a lot of them were kind of destroyed, obviously, over the years. But um, it was more, it was as much as that was um, the sheer... Um, I find it very moving to look at objects that I think were owned by somebody 500 years ago that some man or woman had this secret thing that they kind of thumbed through and looked at the pages and thought, well, you know, I uh, looking for, you know, and a lot of the recipes or, you know, spells and stuff are for things that um, people are still very concerned about today. It's about money and it's about sex. You know, it's, you know, erectile dysfunction. You know, all those kind of spam emails you get are kind of in these books of like, you know, you know, how to have babies, how to make yourself wealthy, how to get someone to fall in love with you. It's all this sort of stuff that still um, speaks very much to our culture now, which is I mean, interesting. I love that archival experience of, I know yeah. exactly what you mean of handling yeah. this object. But again, I always feel it's sometimes contradictory there are moments where you can get that sense where the past just drops away and you feel some sense of connection. But there are other times where it almost seems like a barrier between you and the past. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. You you know what I mean? Yeah. In a way that you're handling this object and you're trying to feel some connection and you've just got this dead thing. Well, but also, you know, the other thing with these books is that they do have, you know, I, I don't believe in the devil or whatever, but at the same time, you know, like a few people, you know, I've got all these spells written down that I copied out of these books. And so I had an interpreter with me who was sort of helping me kind of um, um, translate some of these kind of weird spells from sort of ancient French and stuff. And people have sort of said to me, oh, have you tried any of them? It's like, no, <laughs> because, you know, I've seen enough kind of horror movies where a, bunch of, teen- that yeah, yeah, a bunch of teenagers <laughs> kind of like get out their Ouija board and it's like all hell breaks loose. It's like, so I don't believe in it, but... The- so there was a kind of trepidation of like, well, these are books that are were deemed to be incredibly, incredibly powerful, incredibly kind of dangerous for reasons that we might find kind of a little bit foolish. But at the same time, it's hard to dispel them of that a little bit. Yeah. So the way we think about witches and witchcraft, I guess, is a sort of mashup of the English tradition and overlaid with the American tradition. Mm. 
Is the French tradition significantly different? Uh, as far as I can tell, it's not really. I mean, the sort of the period in which, so the witch trials, for example, the big kind of period of the witch trials, which is sort of about fifteen fifty to sixteen fifty, and in France, actually, comparatively speaking, not that many witches were burnt. It's kind of mainly Germany and England and yep. Scotland. Kind of, they really got to work um and spain a bit as well um so as far as i can tell it's not significantly different i think you kind of find i mean a lot of these books also one of the interesting things about them i I found was that um a lot of them purport to be uh ancient knowledge handed down by the jews or the moors you know it's all this kabbalistic stuff and you know um there was various centers of publication that were kind of deemed to be kind of like books from like Toledo was a really big uh, site of publication of these books or was rumored to be so all these books sort of are just sort of they are kind of mashups and copies of ancient um, Greek stuff mashed with kind of like other more current kind of herbal stuff plus some sort of just generic kind of uh, there were sort of a few really famous um um, particularly famous kind of magic books, the name of which I can't actually remember any of them now. But um, And so they would include bits of that material as well. But from what I gather, it's not significantly different. Like there was a sort of there, a lot of it is like, you know, wisdom handed down from the Moors who were in Spain and from, you know, Africa. And so it's all this sort of uh, always sort of reaching back into the past where things were more authentic and where people knew stuff that we've lost ancient touch wisdom, with yeah, ancient right. wisdom, yeah, um, which you still kind of find today. I I, I did read that there, <laughs> that France had a strong tradition of widely disseminated demological theory. Now, <laughs> demons are a, another big theme of this book, but I was curious about that. The demonological theory, what relationship does it have to the church? I mean, is it the church explaining that this is how hell works and there are various... I, th- I think it is, yeah. Like, it's a sort of this idea, you know, as as, beloved, so, uh, as above, so below, you know. Like, if you believe in, in, in God and the angels and stuff like that, then it's sort of almost by... Um, it's almost required to believe in its sort of undercurrent as well of the devil and all his various sort of demons. And there's a whole bunch of... Um, books that explain every demon, like, you know, hundreds of demons and their various kind of pro, their names and what they were kind of meant to be guarding or kind of what they were kind of responsible for. So in the same way that you could kind of slate home, um, maybe today you might slate home someone's poor behavior to um, some psychological element. It's, you know, you can, it's a, the demon kind of made, or this various, this type, this particular kind of demon who would have a name and a kind of a, uh, various attributes you could kind of slate home, um, stuff to him or her i guess so yeah that's sort of it's a very sort of complicated um cosmology i guess yeah and i think a lot and from my understanding a lot of this sort of came from the church and then it would also be i mean in some ways the genius of the catholic church has been its ability to um not only impose belief upon people from above but also to kind of absorb organically localized beliefs and kind of incorporate it into its cosmology if you like you know that kind of yeah, I remember going to France a few years ago and there was a there was this beautiful chapel built you know it's like several hundred years old but it's built on the site where they have found kind of um signs of an ancient autumn, autumnal equinox stones as yeah. well like and they, and the church is built in such a way that on the autumn equinox it comes through the stained glass window on this particular time of day and lights up 
um, you know, the cross or the virgin or whatever it is or the altar. So it's sort of this ability to kind of, yeah, incorporate what's already existing uh, in the culture or within kind of villages and, and countries and stuff. Christianity's always been very good at that. Yeah. Another, another theme that comes out in the book, you make it clear that the witches, well, the, particularly the apothecaries that the witches are yeah. patr- patronising, uh, are almost like um, the forerunners of modern science. Yeah. They're, you know, collecting chemicals and they have some degree of knowledge. Do, do you, is the magical theory around at that time, to what extent is it a forerunner of our modern science? And to what extent is it sort of oppositional to... To the kind of logic that's developing, yeah, of the, the, the a, modern age. It's actually a good question. Like you kind of like the 17th century was this sort of period of great change in the sense that, um, you know, I think it was uh, Galileo sort of fronted the Inquisition early in the 17th century, recanting his idea that uh, everything revolved around the sun rather than vice versa. For example, so you had these sort of people who are engaged in what we might think of now as sort of more genuine scientific inquiry, um, using you know evidence and newfangled things like you know, telescopes and, math, you know, and, and applying mathematical theory to kind of cosmology and stuff like that. But then I, I think the apothecaries and people like that were reluctant to let go of ideas of magic. So they sort of incorporated it into um, whatever new information they possibly could. You know, it's sort of a big belief in the fact, you know, in the idea of the philosopher's stone that you could turn any base metals into gold. Like people were genuinely kind of trying extremely hard to kind of find these magical solutions um, to things. That it was all, that everything we needed was in a physical form as this matter of kind of combining them in various combinations in order to kind of make new things, which is kind of what we do anyway. Like Mm. it's sort of, it seems sort of nonsensical perhaps from where we're sitting, but you can kind of see what people were getting at. Mm. Um, and it was a way of, you know, we all understand the world in whatever, with, with according to whatever information we have available to us, I guess, don't we? Like, and that, they were kind of no different. But I think it was an idea, it was more moving towards this notion of magic as a science, you know, and sort of incorporating what would have been sort of peasant magic and women's magic, you know, rural magic into kind of like perhaps a more male urban, uh, you know, we're doing, we're doing proper stuff rather than... Well, that was what I wanted to ask you mm. because there is a, a feminist theme running throughout this book and you very much associate magic with a kind of oppressed femininity, I suppose. Yeah. In the sense well, that this, yeah. Mo- this world that's been created is tremendously hard on women, particularly peasant women, yeah. and magic is one way of responding. Yeah. Uh, well, certainly kind of I was reading a sort of this idea that um, magic is a way or was a way that people might be who are kind of completely disenfranchised from any institutional power. Like if you're a peasant in 17th century France, particularly a peasant woman, you have kind of no chance, you know, to survive. And, you know, and, and the point is made to Charlotte when she loses her husband and she doesn't have a brother that she's in touch with. It's sort of like, well, what are you going to do? You can't do anything. You can become a maid or a servant or a prostitute or, you know, something like that. So you have no kind of recourse to power. Um, so that wasn't only women, but kind of women kind of suffered sort of predominantly from that kind of thing that it was a way of feeling, it's like buying a Tesla lotto ticket, maybe, you know, it's a way of feeling that you just might, 
get the money or the power in order to kind of save yourself and you know and and live better and have your family survive and stuff um so you know definitely there was a lot of people and a lot of women making a lot of money in paris at the time out of you know astrology and palm reading and stuff and so they were kind of using i guess trading on the idea of women being more intuitive and closer to um, um a kind of a mystical realm um in order to kind of for their own ends. I mean, one of the ways I read this book was that it was suggesting that hell is or can be the world that we live in, and it, it's in fact entirely possible to be a demon without mm. knowing that you are <laughs> a demon. And these are fairly bleak ideas, but there is perhaps a glimmer of hope towards the end of the book, sort of along the lines that we've just been talking about. Yeah, I think like I sort of, yeah, I, I mean, again, as we were sort of saying before, I don't really kind of plot out the book a great deal in advance. But having said that, I think by about the halfway point, I need to have at least be working towards something. Um, and I didn't want the book to be, what did I want the book to be? God knows. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want Charlotte just to, for a start, just to be a complete victim. Like, so she, so sort of her trajectory, I suppose, is somebody who um, is given power that can be good, used for good or ill to a certain extent. Um, and I didn't want the, and I liked the idea of her, uh, Charlotte and Lesage kind of, one of them goes up in their moral standing and one of them kind of goes down in their moral standing, I guess, from a, for a kind of very kind of loose point of view. Um so it's like most of my books are, I think, aside from the low road, they kind of end happily or you could say that they end happily if you're drunk and you squint. <laughs> They're just sort of like, yeah, like people kind of get what they want. You know, Cairo, for example, our hero, for want of a better word, he, he kind of gets the girl, but he, he gets the painting of the girl. You know what I mean? Like, So he sort of gets what he wants, but not really. Yes, in often quite bleak universes. I mean, the re reviewers have described this as mm. a gothic novel, and you use that yeah. in terms of bereft. Is that um, does that gothic tradition mean anything to you? Look, I think it means something in the sense of, I think the gothic is about you know we kind of tend to think of various aspects of the human condition as being kind of one or the other or opposite or or, or you know you're living or you're dead. You're a man or you're a woman, you're awake or you're dreaming. And I think the Gothic's all about collapsing that stuff. You know, if you think of Frankenstein, well, he's alive, but he's dead. You know what I mean? Like, and, or, or Poe is always these guys who are like, well, he could be crazy or he could be being tormented really by a ghost or he could have just taken too much laudanum. You know, like you don't kind of know really what's going on and who's who's capable of what and who... Well, that's very much the theme of this novel. Yeah, it? and I sort of really enjoy working in that space where it's where the reader has to constantly recalibrate their um, perceptions of what exactly is happening, I guess. And I think... So I certainly kind of like that idea of the goth, of, of working in a space where people are unsure or the characters and the readers are unsure of exactly who is what and what is happening until kind of the end. But even then, it's sort of ambiguous. Oh, just finally, this is the first of a multi-book deal that you signed with Picador. Is this indicative of the direction that you're going in now? 
I, I don't know. I sort of my next thing that I'm contracted to is a short story collection. So I sort of write a few of those over the next kind of little while. And as for a novel, I really don't know. I do quite like the idea of being the guy who no one quite knows what he's going to do next. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, which probably would annoy my publisher, maybe because we won't tell them. Yeah, we won't tell them. Um, hopefully, they won't listen to this. But um, so I don't know. Like I do. Um, yeah, I don't know, to be honest, what's going to happen next. Well, we await to find out the book is City of Crows. We've been talking to its author, Chris Wormsley. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you.